Greetings, this is Kurt. This is a continuation of the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. Otherwise, make yourself comfortable as we continue the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments and questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to be a preferred audience member and help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you for listening. <coughs> this man carrying a wand? We didn't request a mage. Remove him. I wanted the conductor. Well, come along, you. I am the conductor. Let go of me. You don't understand. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Ready to let the game. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is episode 10. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. Chapter Thirteen. The next morning, the shriek of two squabbling wrens outside her window woke Flana from a dreamless sleep. Her auburn hair spread about her pillow. She looked out the window. Hmm. Mid-morning? How could I have slept so late? Then she remembered. Sitting up with alarm, she rubbed the sleep out of her face and went over the events of the night. Her near defilement by Gunther in the guise of Clough and his violent death at the claws of the were-tiger that had once been Gaewan. The last thing she could recall was crying herself to sleep curled up under the tree next to Gunther's body. So depressed had she been by Gaewan leaving her, even after she pleaded with him to stay. <sighs> she sank back into the covers, wishing sleep's ignorance to wash away the loneliness welling up in her heart. As she turned her head to look out the window again, a blur of color startled her eye. Oh. On the table beside her bed, in a brass vase, was a large blue flower, its thousands of tiny petals unfolding to embrace the sunlight. With wonderment, she sat up again and gently lifted the vase, bringing the bloom close. I have never seen a Saroni before, for that must be what it is. There being no other blooms like it. 
The blue flower was said to be found only in places deep within the unexplored forests or behind large rocks on the heights of impassable mountains. The legend is, as her elfin mother had told it, that the flower can only be found by those gentle in manner and true in heart. For the bloom is so sensitive and delicate, it can detect when someone approaches and will close up to disguise itself as a common weed. The serenade's faint scent, sweet yet not cloying, cool yet not sharp, curled about her nose in the wake of her breathing upon it. And then she remembered what had happened after Gaewan had run away again. Low voices had brought her partially out of an exhausted sleep, but she had been too worn out to do more than glance about groggily and close her eyes to drift off again. Someone had picked her up and held her while a familiar voice told the story of Gunther's attack on her. Another man, the marshal, ordered others to carry the corpse away. She had been carried out of the cool darkness into the friendly warmth of the tavern, firm arms lifting her up the stairs. A tender kiss had followed the gentle hands tucking her into bed. Hugging herself with gladness, for only Gaewan could have done all these things, she hopped out of bed and started to dress, choosing one of her new skirts over her customary breeches. The unworn cloth felt good next to her skin, and she mused about her usual preference for breeches over clothing. Considered more appropriate for a woman in town. Aside from the practical reasons, it would prove difficult to trek in the wilderness or fight in a dress. She determined her wearing of breeches was symbolic of my anger at being labeled a social deviant for being a half-blood. She was well aware of her fortune in being born to a couple in an outpost village, where such prejudices were rare due to the small number of people trying to eke out a living in the untamed wilderness. In the larger settlements like Hopetown and the royal cities across the ocean, the common perception concerning children of mixed parentage were that they were considered less than capable, sometimes stupid. And in my case, malformed. Strangely enough, the only evidence of her supposed misfortune was her tapered ears. Otherwise, so far as she could determine, there are no differences between myself and purebred women of human descent. In fact, after her lengthy exposure to commoners beyond her home village, I have to wonder at the source of these misconceptions. Contrary to popular perception, Flana considered herself lucky, for I possess the best characteristics of both humans and elves. Thinking about her companions, she found it interesting that they too suffered the intolerance of society to various degrees. Gaewan, an enchanter and member of a mysterious order of mages and mystics that were frequently scoffed at or blamed for the problems of the world. Cluff, an elf who lived and worked with men, despite their bigotry towards the forest dwellers. Gon, a dwarf, also apart from his kind, although she did not know why. Dwarves were known to stick together in their own isolated villages, safe from the cruelty of normal men. And now Ablui, 
a priest of the freethinkers, a spiritual path celebrated by elves but given minimal regard amongst men. Of course, is there really such a thing as normal? Perhaps those who mark themselves normal only do so to distinguish themselves from those they fear. Well, let them fear me. I'll wear breeches and tuck my hair behind my ears until they quake in their boots. But for today, just to look special for gay one, I'll wear my new town clothing. She laced her bodice snugly over her bosom, noticed that her soft leather boots had been left standing proper next to her bed, and was suddenly struck with the question, Who undressed me for bed? Gay one. She felt good knowing Gaewon was not squeamish about naked bodies. For, though they had mutually declared their devotion to one another, as yet had they shared a bed or consummated this love. As for undressing her, He probably wanted to make sure I had not been wounded in my struggle with Gunther. Her own father had been adamant about being clothed even for bed, even on the warmest nights. After she grew used to dancing naked in the forest when he was gone, she learned to wait until after her father had done his nightly bed check with her before flinging off her chemise and indulging herself in the freedom of fresh air caressing her bare skin. Tying on her white waist sash, with the tabletop looking glass she had recently purchased, she admired herself and her new clothes. Hmm. Nodding confidently to herself, she left her room and the tavern and walked briskly down the road to the Athenium. Disappointed at not coming across Clough, Thasgar, or Gon, she hoped they weren't still scouring the surrounding territory for him. She wanted desperately to share her joy of Gaewan's return. Upon entering the Athenium, she found no one attending the desk. Hmm, not even Muff is in sight. Guessing that Trimble must have been on an errand in town, she hoped it didn't mean Gaewan also wasn't here. She stood silently and listened for any sounds in the large chamber with its maze of tall shelves. Save the low noise of the street and the distant market square outside, it was very quiet. Then she caught the crinkle of parchment being unrolled, a scroll, and headed into the shadowed aisles between bookcases. Turning at an aisle juncture, she nearly stumbled over the enchanter where he crouched. He fell backward onto his rump with a gasp and blinked at her in shock. In his hands was a scroll with some faded scribbling on the parchment, his golden light sphere hovering a few measures above his head. Love, I'm so sorry. She bent over to lend him a hand up, but he ignored it, staring at her with bloodshot eyes out of a face pale and drawn with fatigue and anxiety. Keep away from me. He dropped the scroll and shuffled backwards on all fours. Stunned, she could only look at him with concern and wonder. Kwan, it's me. You don't have to hide. Keep away. Moving further back, he bumped into a wall, then flicked his eyes at his witchlight, making it disappear and shrouding them both in the shadows beneath the indirect sunlight of the Athenium's tall, mullioned windows. Bewildered, she stood motionless for a moment and stared at the frightened man scrambling away from her. She had not expected him to be anything like this, especially after taking her up to her room last night. Not sure what to do, for she didn't want to frighten him further, 
She remembered... When I was a little girl and scared a rabbit into a small hole beneath a couple of stacked rocks. Flaina sat herself down on the floor at her end of the aisle and wrapped arms around her skirted knees. I'll wait for him to come to his senses, just like I'd waited for that rabbit to get hungry enough to come out again. I won't go away. He glowered suspiciously at her as he pulled his legs up and mimicked her sitting position, then assessed her silently for a long moment. Curious about me, are you? Hearing the distrust in his voice and Ablui's advice fresh in her thoughts, she realized just how miserable he must have been feeling. I love you. He looked away. Why would you even want to speak to me? I just told you. I am not giving you up to this disease. And I miss you, Gaewan. You were sick for three days, and then you ran away for another two. Since you dropped in your tracks in the vault, we haven't had more than a few moments together. Well, you've got your moments now, haven't you? He smiled mirthlessly at her, then rubbed his face wearily. Wanting desperately to reach out to him, stroke his brow, she fought down the urge. Are you tired, love? She knew he hadn't slept in his bed for several nights. What should you care? Is it wrong for me to care? He winced at her sharp tongue. I suppose not. But isn't it obvious that I'm the one who is wrong? What do you mean? Talk to me, my love. I've come to you. Now you must come to me. Don't you understand what's happened to me? I'm not the man you loved before the fever. With a half-smile, she regarded him. That's funny. You certainly look like him, though perhaps a little worse for the wear. For the moment, anyway. I still see a man I feel strongly about. I suppose you feel strongly about bloodthirsty animals, too, like Gunther. She shook her head. You're not a bloodthirsty animal, gay one. You're my consort, my intended. Am I? He looked away again. Shifting from her seat, she got on all fours and crawled closer to him, not wanting to risk scaring him by standing over him. Go away! His eyes glinted coldly. No. Go away! Make me. No, please. Flader. He held up palms as his eyes swelled with tears. I, I don't know if... if... Stopping just within reach of him, she sat up on her knees and looked at him caringly. I love a man called Gaewan. Aren't you he? He was unable to meet her gaze. I don't know anymore. Aren't you the man who shared a mystical bonding potion with me to prove our love for each other? You look like him. She touched one of his hands. He flinched slightly. You have his hands. His mind, his inner spirit. Squeezing eyes shut and clenching his jaw, tears streaked down his face. Tis only your physical shell that has been altered. The man I love is still here, is he not? He looked with misery at the ceiling. I don't know. Then dropped his eyes to where he hung onto his legs desperately, his anchor amidst the turmoil of his mind. All I do know is that now I am more the orphan, 
further separated from you, from my world, by this cursed disease. Orphan. With a delicate finger, she lifted his chin. You are not alone. A distant thought wondered. I wonder where Glink is. Wardmates being linked to their masters until death. I hope the Mudcat is all right. Gaewan tried to hold her watchful gaze, but could not, lowering his eyes again. Dismayed at his painful vulnerability, she wondered what to do, having never seen him like this before. He's always been so strong and confident in his ability to control his world. And now he turned away from her, from everything, and hid in the Athenium. Of one thing she was certain. Gaewan hates being pitied. Therefore, she wasn't going to coddle him. She watched curiously as he shut his eyes in nervous concentration and reluctantly slid a hand to the pouch under his cloak. His body shivered slightly, and he gasped as a thirsty man might for a long-awaited but still not adequate drink. After a moment, he removed his hand from the pouch and shakily met her eyes. Knowing it was the crystal he kept in there, she reached out to touch it. What did you do? He grabbed her wrist violently and wrenched it away, preventing her from getting any closer. I told you to go away. No, you'll have to force me. She knew, despite Gunther's ugly death, that the gay one she loved could never harm me in any way. He pushed her away. You already saw me as a beast. Don't make it worse by seeing me as a fool, too. She sat tailor fashion and crossed her arms as she frowned at him. Hmm. And how are you a fool? It's that damned crystal, isn't it? Yes, it's this damned crystal. And I am a fool for toying with it, but I can't stop. If it's hurting you, why not? Because I suffer from incurable curiosity. Besides, I'm a were-tiger now, and you know about cats and their curiosity, don't you? You are a man, not a cat. You don't know what I am. And, and, and neither do I. My body betrays me. It will change at the slightest provocation, tied to the light of the moon and the cloak of night. He shook his head slowly, neck muscles rigid, jaw quivering. I, I, I can't master myself much longer. I am divided, each part of me struggling for the throne of my spirit. No! With wide eyes, she lunged forward, grabbing his shoulders and pushing him against the wall. He must not succumb to the vilest threat of the disease, becoming a complete animal. You are a freethinker. Have you forgotten the teachings? Body and mind cannot, must not, master spirit. A foolish speck am I, orphaned by the unknown. He brought the crystal out from its pouch and held it aloft as if an offering to the gods. Trapped by the unknown. For a moment it seemed he would toss the stone away in anger, but then he lowered it and cradled it tenderly in both palms. My end by the unknown. She shook him until he looked directly at her. Listen to me, k If only for this once, listen. Don't destroy yourself. Me. Us. You must take control. I can't control the unknown. He tried to wriggle free of her grasp. She leaned all her weight against him, 
forced him to stay his place. The gods damn you, Gaewan. This unknown is within you now, and only you can take control. What is it Tremble always tells you? Learn today. Learn tomorrow. Then go out and learn more. She moved her face closer to his so he couldn't look away. Learn about yourself, or will you be a coward and let the disease master you? The panic had eased from his expression as she spoke, and he became still under her weight. Be not afraid of what the unknown can do. Be afraid only of what you can do. Seeing the recognition of his own words paid back to him, she was encouraged and eased on. He's listening, finally. Don't reach for this cold stone for whatever comfort it offers you. Rely instead on me. Is this not why you chose me as your consort? Eyes unmoving, his nod was barely perceptible. She caressed his cheek tenderly. I am here for more than simple companionship. Reach out to me. His countenance shifted through a myriad of transparent expressions, turmoil and fear, then settled into determination as he took the crystal in one hand and reached out to grasp her shoulder, pulling her close. His arm shook with controlled tension as he searched her eyes with his. She met his scrutiny calmly, knowing he would see her love for him. Satisfied with what he found, he slid his hand down her arm, took her hand, and touched it to a facet of the crystal, eager to explore this strange artifact that had given him so much unrest. She pressed her palm firmly to the stone and felt it warm under her touch. Close your physical eyes. Open your third eye. She relaxed within his firm embrace, feeling the gem's facets grow hot and concentrated on the space between her eyebrows. The sedate environment of the Athenium seemed to recede from her awareness, leaving her with a sensation of floating in a psychic nothingness. A glow appeared on the screen of her mind and increased with her concentration. Images flitted by like errant autumn leaves caught in a gust of wind until a sphere of cold white light emerged from the depths of the unseen. She was amazed at the clarity of the scene that appeared, having never experienced such inner vision in all her riads of practicing the spiritual exercises of the freethinkers, disciplines for opening the Tizratil. The cold light thinned, revealing two shadows moving in a circle around the source of light which seemed to be the crystal suspended in the air. Flana detached from what remained of her outer senses and put all her attention on this inner vision, like a sleeper would submerse herself into a pleasant dream. Bright colors erupted from the pulsing glow of the crystal and swirled into the shadowed forms marching around it. An image of Gaewan, in his brightest regalia as an enchanter, walked carefully, peering around the circled path at the other, an image of a large white tiger with ice-blue eyes pacing stealthily. The scene puzzled Flaina. The two are not exactly opposite each other. There was a third shadow, not enlightened by the crystal's colors, and standing not quite within the path tread by Gaewan and the tiger. 
As much as she tried to see, all she could discern was... A faint outline of a man, perhaps? Or a winged creature? The best she could guess... It watches the other two march around the crystal. Returning her attention to them, she contemplated the double pursuit as each tirelessly stalked the other. Finally, she pressed her thoughts outward. Gaywan, listen to me. I am listening. This mutual hunt can end only with the death of both. Stop! No. Why not? The other one will find and destroy me. To kill the other is to kill yourself. Do you wish suicide? Gaywan and the tiger faltered in their strides. No, I must continue. What to do? She wondered, putting herself in the same place. It was clear Gaewan suffered a severe identity crisis, much like Ablui had described. Yet for what purpose does the crystal serve? Has it worsened matters? Perhaps not. It was merely the channel through which she and Gaewan shared this experience. The task put before her, the one in which Gaewan was failing, was to bring these two into some sort of harmony, though exactly how, she wasn't sure. Both were separate, yet one and the same. Listen, two seeds of a great leaf tree are planted beside each other. As they grow, each battles the other for sunlight, for sustenance, for simple existence. Fight for existence. Then they join as one tree, one life to be greater than others. To join as one? Man and beast stopped in their tracks and pondered each other with curiosity, their common belligerence absent. How? Flana was inspired by the symbolism she saw. As a free thinker joins with the light and sound of God, go within. Within? The crystal holds the space within your path. Suddenly realizing what she had said, she wondered again about the crystal. It is within. So what does this mean? That it is a part of Gaewon now? Disturbed with these speculations, she wanted to stop what she had started, but did not see any other solution. The crystal of the unknown. To go within will be to know. Gaewan and the tiger turned their eyes to the source of light. Blue and gold streaks erupted from its shining core and encircled them as a low thrum rose out of the psychic emptiness, like a door opened into thunder. They paced slowly to the floating gem and, moving in tandem, lifted hand and paw to touch facets. To be one. At that instant, as the crystal pulsed brighter, the third shadow leaped into the circle with arms stretched wide. Fearful, Flana wanted to cry out, to stop it, to see what it was, but her inner sight was blinded in the explosion of white fire from the crystal, making her physical eyes fly open in shock. All at once, she had to reorient herself to her immediate surroundings. Strong arms embraced her warmly, Gaewan's lips next to her ears. Forgive me, my love. 
Clough grinned over the tavern table at Gaywan and Flaina, having just discovered them enjoying a midday meal. Tis indeed an honor to have you back among us, my friend. Why, Clough, are you so pleased to see me? Let's not be hasty. I judge you an adequate gesture and lady charmer, and an easy fellow from whom to borrow money. Oh, gosh. My money is your money. The elf inspected his fingernails blithely. I feared uh, I had lost my money forever. And it's clear your mutual love for banter hasn't suffered any. Flaina was glad to see the two of them enjoying one of their predictably amusing exchanges. Though adoring and attentive towards her, Gaywan had seemed somehow intent on something beyond his surroundings. That last image of the third shadow suddenly leaping into the circle had not escaped her memory. But that is the precise point, my dear lady. Clough bowed with mock humbleness. To make Gawan suffer for worrying his friends, for here I find him, not lurking in a forest, but lurking in a tavern. Won't you join us? Always. Gray eyes gazing fondly upon his love brother, Clough took Gawan's hands in his own. Please know, we shall never be parted, not even by your misfortune. He stroked the mudcat, resting comfortably upon the enchanter's lap. And we were worried about Glink after he ran away, too. He only ran as far as the kitchen scraps in the backyard. Regardless, I am grateful for your return. I'm not the only one who returned, unfortunately. Eh? What? Gunther made an unexpected appearance last night. Cocking his head curiously, he sat down and listened grimly to the tale of Flaina's near defilement. Unless I'm missing something, where beings can only shapeshift to that of an animal. Aye, you're correct. Therefore, Gunther must have had an accomplice who is a mage. Does this mean Calron may already be among us? Twould seem so, though placing an illusory spell upon someone just to commit rape seems a bit trivial and dangerous since he failed. Perhaps this was done more out of spite. I don't think Calron would have left such an obvious mark of his presence if he was about to strike. Clough leaned back in his chair and crossed arms as he stared pointedly at his friend. How did you know it wasn't really me trying to rape Flaina? Yes, how did you know? Simple question of impossibilities. During my evening prowl, I saw you, he pointed at Clough, sitting in your usual spot under the tree behind the Athenium, watching a squirrel in the branches. And a few moments later, I saw what could not have been Clough sitting with you, then pointed at Flaina. For several riads, whenever I wanted to find him, all I had to do was look there after my day of study and practice. He would always wait for me there so we could have supper together. He couldn't have been in two places at once. Just a moment. You can't have been in two places at once either, and you can't have followed both of us at the same time. How were you so sure I didn't just run over there before you got to her? Gawan smiled. I knew you would never make such advances on her, even if I was gone for good. With a compliment like that, I have to let you go. And it's unfortunate there isn't an attractive lady nearby to hear how courtly you are. Oh, well, aside from you, an attractive young elf without a consort is about as plentiful as a dragon in these parts. Flaina was astonished at his indirect compliment. No one except Gawan had ever referred to her as a pure elf. 
The enchanter looked suddenly thoughtful. A dragon. Then promptly got up and headed for the door. Having deftly jumped off his master's lap, Glink scrambled after him. Okay, Wallen? Oh dear. He's up to something. Shall we hop to and see what it is? Definitely. I'm still not sure he hasn't retained a bit of madness from his becoming the shape changer. From what I've seen, he is far from any madness caused by that. Now, by his being Gaywan, most probably. She swatted at him lightly. You're almost worse than he is. Thanks. I was hoping for worst. Rolling her eyes at his incorrigible facetiousness when around his love brother, she snatched his hand and pulled him after her. Why do I feel like I'm wearing a path between the brass dragon and the Athenium? They are rather his home, Flaina. Have been since we first came here. I thought the city of Creston on the young continent was his home. Clough gave her a sidelong look. He hasn't told you. No, but then he has been rather occupied for the last few days. Indeed. The matter seemed unimportant as she increased her speed, not wanting to lose sight of Gaywan's green cloak flapping in his wake thirty paces ahead of them. Clough took in the darkening midday sky. A storm was approaching, and the atmosphere felt heavy, the mountains already masked by a gray sheet of rain. As they passed through the town square, they saw the coastermongers closing down their tarps and carts, further omen of the imminent downpour. Not blind to outward auguries, Clough wondered at what was about to happen, catching a couple of good wives making furtive gestures, wards against evil. He silently hoped his love brother wasn't about to perform another feat of God's new what that would have him tearing through town like a madman again. Rumor had yet to die down from the first time, though most of it centered on the perceived foolishness of mages rather than perceived threats. Reaching the stone structure housing the Athenium, they marched in and glanced about hurriedly. To their mild surprise, Gaywan emerged calmly from the stacks carrying an old book, while Trimble scribbled something into one of his massive record books. Gaywan sauntered over to a reading table and took a seat. Not sure what to think, Elf and Half-Elf exchanged a bewildered look. Huh? This was an anticlimax to what they had expected, a feverish Gaywan chirping at Trimble about something unheard of. Sustaining a sense of mystery, he ignored his companions, except for a quick wink at them as he perused the delicate leaves of his book. Seeing his old self-confidence, Flaina was encouraged. His brooding alarms me, and I am worried about what he's preparing for. When she stole up behind him with Clough in her wake, he was either too absorbed or pretended not to notice when they peered over his shoulder. Hmm? To their mutual dismay, they discovered the book was scribed in a language unknown to either of them. Hmm. 
Deciding patience was the better virtue, especially when there is no alternative. They resorted to prying information out of Trimble. Trimble, what is he up to? Do you know? No, I don't. Though amiable, the aging mage claimed little knowledge, if any, about Gaewan's plans and would not speculate, except to mention the book he studied contained words of the language of the ancients from which all wisdom and learning originated. So they waited. Glink and Muff entertained the elves by playing a chasing game. The Pinchwing had been dozing atop a book on Trimble's desk, but decided to wake up when he discovered the Enchanter's ward mate wanting to play. The Mudcats scampered around the aisles between bookcases, unseen by Muff. The Pinchwing either tried to sneak upon his prey on foot, or, with whirring wings, leapt into the air to seek him out from above. Muff! Over here! Trimble got caught up in the game. Oh, wait, look! He's over there! And would try to see Glink from his vantage point at his desk, advising Muff on which way to go next. No! No! Back over there! Meanwhile, the sky darkened with boiling thunderheads. The game ended as Gaewan closed his book, his earlier calm replaced by a strange aura of determination. Without a single gesture of recognition towards Clough or Flaina, he went to a door hidden by moldy drapes at the back of the chamber, then turned a questioning gaze at his mentor. Trimble nodded in silence. He shoved open the heavy door and entered the stair that led down to the Athenian's protected encanting grounds. The mudcat trotted over to touch a questioning paw to Flaina's leg as he looked up imploringly at her. Come with me, Glink. May we follow him? You cannot wander about here like this was your home. If you wish to observe him, you may watch my chambers overlooking the grounds. Nodding affirmatively, the pair hurried him along. Hurry, hurry, let's go. All right, all right, I'm not as agile as my pinch wing, you know. Fingering his keys, he headed up a stair that emptied out behind his desk. Opening one of several doors at the top of the steps, he allowed Clough and Flaina into a chamber containing a bed, several overstuffed chairs, and three small tables stacked with papers and books of all kinds. Muff, annoyed at losing his playmate, whirred in after them. The mage waved him down to his shoulder. Shh! No more noise, you ratty pinchwing! Upon settling his wardmate, he yanked open some old curtains and with care unlatched a set of hinged double bay windows and peered outside. The elves were beside him before he had a chance to signal them over. Though they were both concerned, they supposed that... If Trimble hasn't perceived anything untoward, then perhaps there is no need for worry. At the same time, they were eager to watch Gaewan perform what they believed would be a major enchantment, Flaina especially. Below the window was the circular courtyard of dirt and scattered cobblestones, painstakingly kept free of any plants or vegetation and surrounded by a high, roughly triangular wall of wood planks, thorny brush, and what was left of an inner bailey's crumbling stone wall, the combination effectively shielding the area from curious eyes. The entire space was roughly 70 paces across at its widest point. 
The trio in the window observed silently as Gaewan tossed back his cloak, reached into a small box sitting next to the door he had just come through, then walked into the courtyard. As he neared the center, he began sprinkling a coarse blue dust from his fist. What's he doing? He spreads the powder of the blessed blue stone around him and chants a word of protection. This creates an unseen sphere that wards off unwanted entities and lost spirits seeking power for sustenance. I would suppose that he's planning a powerful enchantment. You mean to say you don't know what he's going to do? No, I don't. Gaewan is an enchanter of the Third Circle and more than capable of making his own decisions. I serve only as an advisor and teacher when so requested. Even after he went after the crystal that second time and nearly killed himself, you don't question his intent? Her assumption that Trimble provided some sort of limitation in the uses of the mystical powers was shattered in the wake of realizing he was just as curious as they about Gaewan's activities. After the event, it is clear he made the correct decision in fighting the sorcerer who had spellbound the crystal. Self-responsibility, accountability for his actions, is a requirement for passing beyond the second circle. Where mages follow prescribed ceremony and procedure, enchanters are a free-running breed, directing the power they channel in infinite forms. I could no more control his actions than I could tell the birds where to fly. He smiled with reassurance. Suffice it to say that though I cannot predict or control Gaewan's actions, I can and do trust him in his endeavors. Feeling out the mage's aura, hmm. Flaina allowed herself to be mollified. If only temporarily. Besides, there is nothing I can do to stop what's about to happen. Knowing it would be futile to explain Gaewan's odd mood throughout the morning. Something strange is afoot, and I'm not sure I like it. Glancing at Clough, who merely shrugged, she returned her attention to the courtyard while absently stroking Glink's arched back as he perched on a chair beside her. Magnificent thunderheads peeked in the gray sky, their murk blotting out the suns. Muff lighted on Trimble's head. Shush! The pinchwing complied reluctantly, stretching his long neck out the window to peer down at the courtyard, his long tongue probing with a quiet hiss at the air. Finished with sprinkling the bluestone powder in a large circle about his feet, Gaewan knelt with his head lowered to the ground. The moment of meditation presented an appearance of unpretentiousness in the muted sunlight. The lowering clouds made it seem the even had come early. After a few moments, he raised his head, stood up straight, and looked up at the thickening overcast as he brought the crystal out from its pouch. Flaina cast a quick glance at Trimble to see his reaction. His slightly wizened countenance was void of anything except careful concentration on the enchanter. The observant pinchwing perched on his head making him look like some strange helmed serpent lord.
A Bridge of Doom, Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. The sound plays of the novel were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for Episode 10 are performed by Jim Marshall, Richard Hammer, Puffin, Darcy Aradell Hotelling, and H, the Great and Powerful. The novel and its sequels, making up a quintology so far at present, are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price, with additional bonuses from the author, by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at Yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios, Mix Kit of Victoria, Australia, and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.